Hello, and welcome to the V the Various podcast. My name is Tim Brevett, and I have had the joy of being with Redshift Online, Redshift Radio as it was, since the summer of 2012. In the intervening eight years, I have had the joy of interviewing a variety of different guests across a whole spectrum of different subjects. This first season of V for Various is going to be made up of shows from that time which were used on Redshift Radio and edited for Redshift Online's podcasts. So obviously any dates that you hear to forthcoming events, releases, etc. no longer apply, but the content is still very, very relevant. Now, I've had to change the name of my podcast from what was something different on Redshift Radio to V for Various, and that is because somebody's already got a something different podcast, which is quite vexing, but never mind. Enjoy this first season of formerly something different shows on my new V for Various podcast. Please subscribe, and if you want to get in touch to feature on a future show, you can email me, Tim Prevett, that's P-R-E-V, ett at gmail.com you can also find me on all the usual social media channels thank you for listening and remember please subscribe this evening we are hearing an interview about time in the royal marines in aden in the mid 60s and the situations in aden introduce my interviewee and it's a gentleman called dennis sparrow he's a royal marines aden veteran had Extensive experience in Aden in the 60s and has authored three books on Aden. I will talk about them much later into the show. I've been looking to catch up with Dennis Sparrow for, um, well, we've been consciously trying since January this year. I, I live in Manchester. Dennis lives in Stroud in Gloucestershire. Looking for mutually available time and we managed to find a mutually available slot uh, last Tuesday, last week. And um, I've been busy preparing the interview. I'm also taking the interview from almost a newbie's point of view. So if you've served in Aden or you very up on what happened there, some of it will be a little bit basic for you, but hopefully it just sets the scene. And like myself, who has come to it fairly fresh, it tells you what you need to know. So I've split the interview up into lots of segments and we'll get going. What's your experience with Aiden? Well, I first went there on my way to Singapore in 1960. Um, in the, the late 50s, they converted HMS Bulwark to a helicopter carrier. It all like, started off because of um, the Suez uh, crisis where fixed-wing carriers were used with helicopters on to ferry troops ashore for the first time ever they were used. And it was a continuation of that. They found it was a quick and efficient and a safer way of putting troops ashore mm -hmm. as well as landing craft. So the idea of the ship would sail to the Far East and literally sail around the Far East, if there was any problems, it would be the first to be called on. And Aden, once we entered the Red Sea, and obviously the Indian Ocean was the first port of call, before we continued on to Singapore. The, our base was in Singapore, but we would sail from Singapore up to Aden, down to Mombasa, back to Aden, then back to Singapore, and we literally, for... 18 months, 
did those trips either to the Persian Gulf or to Mombasa in a roundabout trip each way with um, trips to Borneo and Hong Kong like thrown in between. So and that was the basics of getting to know Aden because we, we called in Aden probably about six, seven times. And so I then asked Dennis, what's the reason for your ongoing interest in Aden in this 50th year of commemorating the events of 1967? I think we all have, all feel the same who served there. Aden was possibly one of the most modern ports in that area, even into the Persian Gulf, because of the British presence. Mm -hmm. But it still had that Victorian feeling of nothing changed since Queen Victoria was on the throne. So therefore, because of that, everything was a bit more laid back. Although there were problems uh, and danger in Aden itself, as well as upcountry, people felt more relaxed. Therefore, they, their memories of Aden is probably more prominent than Singapore or Hong Kong. I ask him, what's the historic background for UK interest in Aden? British, and I would say possibly more Royal Navy ships, were looking for somewhere as a base and a supply of water since the 1600s. During the 1700s, they tried a few places around a couple of islands off of Aden, but they, their water supply wasn't sufficient. So I won't say it was dropped, but it was always kept in the minds that there was Aden itself, but it was a hostile place. Then during the 1800s, piracy became quite a problem, and the pirates were based in Aden. So they had two things really one to to ha have a base with water available and also to get rid of the pirate version okay. so they approached the r ruler of Aden itself which was the sultan of Lejai and it was an elderly person and they came to an agreement to buy it and use it as a base he died and his son objected to what his father had done. So British troops, which were based in India, as well as the ship, actually took it by force. And they formed a base there, and it, to start with, it became a coaling station. So all ships, even coming through the Suez Canal or up from South Africa, would stay, stop there, reprovision water, coal, and then carry on to the Far East. Mm -hmm. As the years and the wars brought it forward, it changed from a coaling station to an oil station and an oil refinery was built to um, process the oil. So it, the base itself grew uh, quite considerably and as aircraft was introduced during the First World War, only one or two, mm -hmm. it grew into a major air base and again, as aircraft coming from the UK had to refuel somewhere. Aden was one of the main fueling bases before they continued on to India or Singapore. So let's just briefly remind ourselves where Aden actually is. If you're looking at a map of the world, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and then the bottom right-hand corner of the Mediterranean Sea, you have the Suez Canal, which goes down 
next to Egypt. That enters into the Red Sea, and you have the Arabian Peninsula. And as you just go around the corner of the southwestern side of the Arabian Peninsula, you've got Aden just on the corner. So it's a, a very conveniently geographically placed location. You may have caught the new BBC drama, The Last Post, set in Aden, starting around Christmas 1965, maybe I assume is taking it up to the events of 67. I don't know, we'll have to wait and see. If you have an opinion about the last post, do get in touch. For the moment, we're back to Dennis, who explains to us the historic parts to Aden. There's two parts to Aden. The Crown Colony is Aden itself. Outside of Aden was a vast desert area leading up into the mountains on the border of the Yemen. At first, the British didn't want to know about those areas because they were always troublesome between the different tribes Mm -hmm. whose attitudes and way of living hadn't changed in hundreds of years. But they were involved first at the request of uh, an emir up on the border to intervene with tribes which were coming over the border causing trouble. And that was in 1881. And from then onwards, um, things seemed to escalate, and then they became the protectorate. And there was an eastern protectorate and a western protectorate. The eastern protectorate, leading up to the, um, the border with Oman, was fairly trouble-free. Not completely, but fairly trouble-free. It was the western protectorate, which Dala, which is the main city, as in their terms, up on the border, um, which caused a lot of the trouble. And then I asked Dennis, have other countries besides the UK had an interest in Aden? Well, the, the main interest or objection came from Yemen. They never accepted the British way of, of taking Aden itself or the agreement which was agreed with the Sultan at the time. They never agreed with that. They, so therefore, they always cause problems or encourage problems, cross-border problems, with the tribes in the protectorates. This was on and off literally for a hundred years. During the late 50s and obviously into the 60s, this, this trouble escalated, but we do know that the Americans had their hand in it mm-hmm. because of the possibility of oil being found in Yemen and as well as Aden. The Russians were also had the finger in it. Egypt became the most prominent troublemaker because they backed Yemen and supplied thousands and thousands of troops and they trained the rebels to fight the British. Mm-hmm. China, it, it's felt that China did have some kind of finger in the pie because once we left, China was as well as Russia, came in and started building roads and infrastructure really to build their own colony. Uh, have they continued that? Or they given They the did case? it for a period of time and it, they both gave it up after a period of time that uh, it was too much trouble. I then ask Dennis to talk to me about different significant places in Aden and the area and to unpack a little about the significance of those different places. Well, the harbour of Aden itself, which was just a fishing port to start with, is one of the largest natural harbours in the world. It has 
main advantage, whereas majority of harbours are the mouth of a river, yeah. so they get silted up. Aden isn't, except for the sand, which is obviously blown from the, in from the desert. It's a natural harbour with no other than ordinary tides to plug it up. Steamer Point is at the mouth, practically at the mouth of the harbour itself, uh, and that is where a lot of the bunkering points are for refuelling, and also it was um, like a pier for ships, boats, to carry passengers from the ships to the shore. Uh, the whole part, the Isthmus of Aden, is volcanic. And Crater, obviously for its name, was built within that crater. And it was the original, it's like main port of Aden, going back into the 1500 and 1600s. From a distance, it looks quite impressive until you actually get into it mm -hmm. and into the back streets. Um, it's got both the colonial um, feeling as well as the squalor, which you would find in a lot of Far East or Middle East cities. Kermaxa was a, a small village on in an area which was um, bordered with salt pans, obviously for collecting salt. It became the Air Force base and it was built up to become probably one of the biggest Air Force bases in the world. Tower, T-A-W-A. Tower, yeah. That was alongside or a continuation of Steamer Point, which was the main shopping centre. The frontage of, called the Crescent, was again colonial buildings um, and quite, say, posh shops. But the further you went back towards the Jebel Shamsam, which was the top of the, um, the crater, mm -hmm. then the more squalor the shops, the buildings, etc. became. Okay, Ma'ala. Ma'ala was, uh, again, it's like a continuum as you went round the harbour, uh, but this was mainly one road, which um, eventually, it's called Ma'ala Strait, it was awarded the name the Murder Mile. Okay. Because it, it really came um, a treacherous place to live. But on either side, it was built high-rise flats. And practically all those flats were um, where the, um, the armed forces lived. The, with their families, that is. Um, okay. Uh, little Aden. What's the difference between Aden and Little Aden? Well, this is where they built the oil refinery. <laughs> and it was... Roughly about 30 to 40 miles away from Aden, you had to go right round the harbour and they built a causeway um, across the end of the harbour because of the uh, mudflats okay. or uh, salt pans. And then you literally went right round to the opposite side of Aden where the oil refinery was. There were originally small fishing villages there but as the oil refinery grew, um, which the building of it was in about 1952-1953, and I myself can remember going to the cinema in Stroud on a Saturday morning and watching a BP film of the oil refinery being built. And the one thing that stuck in my mind was that they had to take everything there, including sand and water to build it. 
in the middle of a desert. Yeah. And yet that wasn't um, suitable for building. Yeah, I was reading recently um, that Saudi Arabia imports a lot of sand because the sand in its own country is too fine to go into mixing concrete. And finally, you mentioned Dala, and I've heard about the Dala Road. I take it, does the Dala Road go up through an area called the Radfan? The Dala Road is is the road to Mecca. Okay. So therefore, it became, literally over 100 years, extremely important. But there were various tribes along uh, Dala Road, and they all um, collected like a toll fee from travellers. And obviously there was a lot of fighting over that in particular. So as British troops drove over the roads, or anybody for that matter, um, they tried to extract a toll from them. And of course, British who, who didn't pay, um, they would mine vehicles or, sh or shoot at them. But it, it was the main road, uh, in Aden itself or out of Aden. It became, um, well known purely because the, because of the, um, the peaks that rising from seven or eight thousand feet up to ten thousand feet, um, housed tribes which really their only revenue was from the road. It was surprising how self-sufficient they were, but in like a small way. And because these tribes thought they were untouchable, that they were able to come and go um, from the mountainous area down into the desert on the flat period where the road was, they would come out of the mountains which they caused the trouble, and then go back again. So the British troops then uh, felt enough is enough. We've got to go in and sort them out. I asked Dennis, in anticipating the mutiny and the problems they are having up country, uh, did everyone in Eden get on with the British? Generally speaking, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, surprising how well they did uh, get on well with each other. I think because that you had several generations over a period of time who grew up with British troops and people being there, and they up to a certain extent accepted our way of living and took it up themselves. Uh, their education was based on, on, Brit on the British way. They taught English as one of the main languages, as well as their own. All the health, everything like that was all part and parcel of the British way of, of living, even the post office police etc okay. so it's kind of like an economic economical benefit which filtered down into um, having a better way of life although initially Britain came in as a, an occupying presence I guess a bit like with the Romans and <laughs> around Europe people came to appreciate the stabilizing presence of, of an external power and the resources the money that came with them exactly um, you could com easily compare it with the Romans and the Greeks who built the same kind of um, state of living wherever they went. I asked Dennis Sparrow, Royal Marines, Naden veteran, what were the problems, quote, up country? There was two sort of main problems up country, mainly because the tribes fighting each other, and each area had a, like a sultan or an emir who was, so say, in charge 
of a certain area, which just say like Gloucestershire. But the tribes didn't take an awful lot of notice of them. So British troops stationed up on the border, which we were, provided the law and order for, we say, the powers that be in that area. I then asked Dennis what happened in 1963 to begin destabilising the British presence. Well, like a lot of the countries, Malta, Cyprus, etc., Singapore, the British idea was that they would, over a period of time, hand back the country to the people who were capable of governing themselves. Aden was no different. So therefore, they the name changed from... A colony, though the colony itself didn't end at that particular time, but it became or started to become a federation of all the different tribes and tribal areas in both in around the protectorate. Mm -hmm. The last one which was very dubious about joining was Aden itself, the colony itself. And this is where trouble began to escalate when they couldn't agree with each other and the British... High Commission, who was the governing part of Aden, either they weren't very good at what they were doing or whether they were just knocking their head against a brick wall. But during 1963, problems began to escalate and the, the rebels upcountry declared that they would fight the British wherever they could find them. That Like a, stand, like a, a statement that we were going to go to war with you. Then in um, December 63... A bomb exploded in the airport with the idea of killing the um, high commissioner. His secretary and I like pushed him out of the way, shielded him, and he was killed. The high commissioner lived. Fifty people were injured, and an Indian woman was also killed. That caused a state of an emergency, which, when broken down, means that there is more the ability to enforce law or increase law to enforce it. Mm -hmm. And that uh, was declared in in, um, the end of 1963. I asked Dennis, were the events of 63 the reason for increase of British forces in Aden? Not really, no. The government, the Labour government at that particular time, had decided they were closing Malta, they were partially closing Cyprus, and it was just a chain of events that Aden was one of the next bases they just wanted to get rid of. Okay. So the sooner they built up this federation to the point where they were able to look after themselves, then the sooner the British would leave. Okay. But the idea, um, or the final idea, that they would still have a presence in Aden and they would put it in Litladen, where the oil refinery is, partially as security, but partially being out of the way of Aden itself. Similar to really how Cyprus is. Uh, Cyprus has been handed back to Cyprus, but we still have a sovereign base there, uh, which is obviously used by the services uh, to this present day. Do go onto YouTube and search about Aiden and the Aiden emergency and Mad Mitch, who will be coming to before long. You will see a number of documentaries and videos, some better quality than others available we can watch. I've been watching some myself to help prepare for this and prepare for interviewing Dennis last week. In those videos, you will see graffiti on the walls from 1967 and before then, and you will see words like Flossie and NLA. 
F. Now, there are a number of groups seeking to destabilise Aden and push the British out. So I ask Dennis, were Flossie and the NLF the only groups destabilising Aden? And Flossie was the Federation for the Liberation of South Yemen and the NLF was the National Liberation Front. Yes, they were. Uh, but if we take a step back over the years, almost exactly like in this country during the 50s, trade unionists expanded their ideas or possibly the people who ran it had bright ideas of power. The same thing happened in Aden. Trade unions were introduced in Aden and as the leaders became more powerful, then they caused more problems, strikes, riots and things like that. And this continued right through the 50s into the 60s. But those two fronts were basically came from across the border in Yemen and they were paid and financed by mainly from Egypt and also Yemen. The difference between them, one had decided that they would get the freedom by force in force only. Mm-hmm. And the other one was quite prepared to, we say, to talk about it and then use force. In in the middle of things, they amalgamated, but because they didn't agree, then a war broke out between the two factions and they literally tried to wipe each other out. Okay. Uh, if British troops were there at the time, they would stop what they were fighting, interfighting and take on the British troops as an afterthought. What British forces were there in Aden at the time? There's always been a battalion strength stationed in Aden. Back in the early 60s, it was the King's Own Scottish Rifles, King's Own Scottish Borderers. Then, as they closed the Malta base, the 3rd Commander Brigade, which consisted at that time of two command units, 40 Commando and 4-5 Commando, they moved 40 Commando to Singapore to join 4-2 Commando, Mm as a base in Singapore, and they moved Fort Five Commando into Aden as extra security, mainly took over um, the security of the border. When all the problems started towards the end of 63 and the beginning of 64, they decided that they would send the Federal Army, that was the Aden, own, its own army, into the Radfan Mountains to do the policing job or control it. Unfortunately, they weren't up to it. So, although the official saying that it was a complete success, it wasn't. They didn't do what they set out to do. So, during January and February, they decided that they would use British troops to do, to do the job. So, obviously, they flew in different regiments, like the Anglican Regiment, or it used to be the East Anglican Regiment. Uh, they also sent in a company of paratroopers to join 4-5 Commando who would lead the attack or operation as such. After that was completed during the month of May and June, then as the trouble escalated again and started to become terrorism-based, they started bringing other regiments in, all the Guards Brigade either as a company or as a complete battalion, were stationed in Aden during those last four years. The East Anglian Regiment amalgamated with all their battalions and became the Royal Anglicans, and they had four battalions who all served in Aden. The Gloucesters, as a company, served in Aden. Uh, The Royal Scots 
nearly every regiment in the British Army had some presence in Aden during, we say, the five years in 1960. A lot of those regiments have now disappeared. And it's at this point we need to introduce a very significant fellow into the history of Aden and British interactions there. This is Lieutenant Colonel Colin Mitchell, who was uh, the commander of the 1st Battalion, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. So I asked Dennis, who was Mad Mitch, as he became known? Well, he was... The Argyle and Southern Highlanders was just another battalion which was being sent to Aden to boister the, the number of troops. When he arrived, and he arrived several weeks before his battalion did, what was going on, he didn't like. Unlike, we say, a lot of battalion commanders or anybody in some kind of authority probably didn't speak their mind, he did. Unfortunately, the battalions which were on the ground, they didn't like what he said because what he was accusing them of not doing the job properly. But the problem was that they were restricted to what they could do. There was two main armoured vehicles used in Aden. A ferret, which was a small vehicle, which had a brownie machine gun. Quite light in comparison, heavier than what we would have, but quite light. And there was a Saladin, which was a heavier vehicle. It had a main armament, like a cannon, as well as machine guns. They weren't allowed to use it, even though in there were ex really extreme situations where they were fighting for the very life and some of these vehicles were actually disabled and another vehicle would come in to rescue them, but they weren't used to, allowed to use their large armament to subdue the fire that was coming in. That's the kind of so like politics was, which was being used, which was upsetting troops. And in, the, in our view that lives and injury was being done by the rebels, but and something could have been done about it, but we weren't allowed to. And therefore, the, the local battalions, because they all rotated around the different areas, they were being criticised for something they weren't allowed to do. Before his battalion arrived, the Northumberland Fusiliers uh, were in charge of Crater for law and order. And it was... June the 20th of 1967, when the massacre happened of British troops. And Mad Mitch was the colonel of the Argyles who were going to take over from the Fusiliers. So once the, the massacre had uh, happened, the colonel and his regiment, which was half in, half on the way home, in the other half waiting to go home, they immediately wanted to go into Crater and sort it out, but they were refused, and the commanding officer was relieved of his command. So after a short period of time, Colonel Mitchell was given the job to get back into Crater and take control of it again. Didn't pussyfoot around? Well, he didn't, but he also, at that particular time, the British Army was being reduced. And his battalion was one of them which was going to face the axe. And he was looking for as much publicity as he could get. So unlike, we say, normal way of doing it, he set up to go into Crater. But before he went, he told the press to be present to witness what was going on, which High Command didn't like 
whatsoever. So a lot of fuss was created of what he was doing and it was blown out of all proportion of what he had to do. The Arabs in Crater itself were quite friendly. They, it was, although it was a rough and ready area, it was surprising how trouble-free generally it was. Mm-hmm. And I think with any Arabs are the same as a lot of countries, when there's been trouble in a certain area, they then know when to keep their heads down. So although the Argyles were going to go into Crater, and they so say expected a lot of resistance, there wasn't really going to be any. For Two reasons. One, as I explained, the second, 4-5 commander was given the job of taking positions all round the rim of the crater so they could see down onto crater and if there was any troublemakers they could open fire and take them out straight away. So it was subdued quite considerably. So when he entered with pipes playing etc, uh, he wasn't really walking into trouble uh, but it looked good. So Mad Mitch is a popular figure among the service personnel whom he was in charge of, but he was felt by his higher chain of command that he'd broken orders. Yes. And yeah. but when he returned to the UK, he wasn't rewarded in the promotion that he was hoping for. Is that... That's right, yes, yeah. yes. So. He'd blotted his copybook and that was it. Yeah. I think the only way he could go was out, mm-hmm. out of the services completely. But he, he not only had he up, upset the, the superiors... As I said, a lot of the battalions around, because of his attitude, um, they didn't like that at all. He spoke very posh, as that's why I, I remember I've seen some footage of him. He speaks like, like one might picture an officer of sort of senior military rank speaking. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think he was one of those which would have been like a Highland chief or Lord of the Manor. Obviously, well educated, and those are the type of people who become senior officers and that concludes the first part of the interview with dennis sparrow please make sure you listen to the second part of the interview which commences with recording the events of the mutiny of june 1967 <laughs>